So today in American Conversations, we're honored to have Dr. Merle Nass, who is a physician who lives in the state of Maine here in the United States. And Dr. Nass, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, why don't we start with, why don't you give us some background about uh, how long you've been practicing medicine? Because uh, you are a physician who treats patients. Uh, and what happened to you uh, when you were treating the patients during COVID crisis? Yeah, I was first licensed in 1980. So I practiced medicine for 41 years. I um, have always sort of looked into odd areas of medicine. And after COVID hit, I spent a lot of time looking into what might be effective treatments and used a lot of hydroxychloroquine and then later added ivermectin. You know, I used other things as well, but those were the two primary drugs that I used. Um, they're both safe. They're both over-the-counter drugs in much of the world. Um, and I had used a lot of hydroxychloroquine previously on Lyme patients, uh, as well as I had a few with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis that had used, I'd used it on also. So I was pretty familiar with that drug. The ivermectin was a new drug for me uh, since it's mainly used for parasites, but I um, learned and it turned out to be a very safe drug and people had almost no side effects from it. So anyway, I did that happily. At the same time, I had documented the suppression of the use of the chloroquine drugs, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, mefloquine, all of which had been shown in vitro to work to kill SARS uh, beta coronaviruses. And that, I can explain that because a lot of people don't understand that they have been used in the past in the 2000, 2004, 5 era when MERS and SARS showed up. Thanks. So um, in the end of 2002, the first SARS epidemic appeared in China and it wasn't that big. It spread to a number of other countries, particularly in Southeast Asia and Canada in the Toronto area, but there were only 8,000 cases and it killed about 10% of the people who got it. And a lot of doctors and nurses got it and died, which always, you know, gets a lot of attention from the medical profession. Sure. Um, so it was a, a virus for which there was no known cure at that time. And a lot of experiments were done afterwards. In fact, there were um, at least four or five escapes from laboratories of that original SARS virus, a cousin of the current SARS virus. And China, the Europeans, many countries sought remedies for it and tested a lot of drugs and did computer modeling of what might work and found the Chinese knew this. The American CDC published a paper in 2005 showing that chloroquine in vitro would kill that first SARS virus. And in 2014, Tony Fauci's agency, the NIAID, published a paper showing that chloroquine would also kill the MERS virus, another cousin of mm -hmm. SARS-2, and that there were also about 60 drugs that could kill SARS or MERS that were likely to have a good effect were something like this to happen again. European scientists showed basically exactly the same thing in papers uh, in 2004 and 2014. And therefore, when SARS-2 hit in China at the beginning, at, you know, at the end of 2019, the Chinese immediately started using chloroquine drugs, both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. They're almost identical. Um, hydroxychloroquine is thought to be slightly safer. And um, so trials were conducted of both drugs in China. Um, Didier Raoult started using it very early in France and had a very, very low, less than 1% mortality rate. So it was, it was looked like a very promising drug, as I said, safe, over-the-counter and cheap, readily available, easy to manufacture, um, which one would have thought would be all positive things during a pandemic. Turned out they were negative because what was desired were very expensive drugs that cost $1,000 or more. Or okay. vaccinations. Or, and or va and vaccinations as well. And had mm -hmm. these drugs been utilized, we probably could, could have gotten control of this pandemic, you know, very quickly. And 
you know, we would be in a whole different situation today. But anyway, the there were many different ways. I documented over 50 ways the chloroquine drugs were suppressed not only by the U.S. government, but by European governments, by pharmaceutical companies that manufactured it, and um, by uh, and name those name those companies, Merrill. Name well, those companies because it's Merck. It wasn't Merck one of the Merck, Merck tried to suppress ivermectin later. Okay. Merck was the original company that, that invented ivermectin, based it on a bacterial product from a soil bacterium uh, isolated in Japan, at, which was called avermectin, was the natural product. They tweaked it a little bit, made it ivermectin, said it worked better, and they could patent it because it wasn't natural. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so Merck, after, and Merck, the former head, Roy Vagalos, the former president of Merck and a physician, had said when ivermectin was discovered that they would donate it to Africans who were suffering from river blindness, onchocerciasis, right. until that disease had been eradicated. So that was a marvelous pledge, and Merck has donated you know, at least a billion doses of this drug to Africans and a few Latin Americans who are at risk of, of onchocerciasis. And they've done so for um, over 30 years. And now when it's useful for SARS-2, Merck says, gee, uh, there's a concerning lack of safety studies about ivermectin. And they're like, wait a minute, you're the ones who patented the damn drug. Right. Uh, how could there have been a lack of safety? You donated it to many millions of Africans. How could there be a concerning lack of safety data? If so, it's at your you know, feet. Um, right. And, and for those of us who have traveled in Africa, we have heard of ivermectin, even though we don't really have a river blindness you know, in the United States. I mean, it's, it's very well known that if you go bare feet into some of the rivers, is you can get this parasite and it goes into your blood. So it's, you know, it, it is when when I saw the discreditation here in the States of people giving, uh, you know, administering ivermectin or taking ivermectin and calling it a horse, you know, um, medication, I, I just laughed. Yes, it's given to animals too, but it was initially, you know, donated to, across Africa because of the river blindness, you know, and in Latin America. Right. Incredible I mean, discreditation. It's good. I mean, aspirin is used by animals too, but we don't call right. aspirin, you know, horse paste. Mm -hmm. um, so this drug is, ivermectin has been approved in the United States for over 20 years. It is used for certain parasitic diseases in the U.S., um, both topically and orally. And it's approved in many, you know, most other countries. But suddenly um, the powers that be had a need to denigrate the drugs that actually were effective for SARS-2. And they settled on this horse paste mem um, as the way to do it, and it was very successful. In fact, uh, FDA was bragging about uh, how many retweets on Twitter they got when they said, um, you know, stop it, y'all. You are not a horse. You are not a cow. You know, don't take ivermectin. FDA actually had to um, redo, I don't know whether it had to, but it redid its website because it was, um, it had some incorrect things about ivermectin on it. Right. And so they, they had to change it and at least make it factually accurate. Um, and then they tried to, what they were working on was implying that all ivermectin was dangerous. It's not, it's very safe. Mm -hmm. um, and that the problem was people were overdosing on the animal product. Well. I mean, they could get the human product. It's manufactured in the U.S. as well as overseas. Um, Edenbridge is a company that makes it. So, you know, you can get the animal product, but if you can't get the animal product, some people were buying the the drug for, if, I mean, you can get the human product. Mm -hmm. yeah, good, use it. If you can't get it, some people bought the animal product, which was over the counter in feed stores. Well, why would they do that? They would only do it because their doctors and their practitioners wouldn't give it to them. You know, right. why? Why right. would you withhold a safe drug that might save someone's life? Because they've been propagandized, you know, because they don't well, know. Not only that, but they wanted to make the market limited that, you know, Vax was the only answer. 
That was it. It was almost like I, I was thinking this could be turned into a movie because it's almost like corporate espionage. You put out so much propaganda so people just buy whatever it is that you have. I just recently learned, though, that many, many countries, when they when they started the vaccination rollout, they purchased, you know, over two and in some cases, nine doses of vaccinations per person okay. before they began the rollout. So now the contracts, the country contracts between the pharmaceutical companies now, to me, is most important, even though we have heard in the past months how draconian some of these contracts are between the pharmaceutical companies and the foreign governments, and even the, you know, here in the United the States. US government, which we haven't been able to see that contract. Well, we haven't seen it yet, but we have people working on it because because we're you know th th I think there's such a cluster of cross referencing that that it's now turned out to be I've got teams and the you know and whistleblowers and the farmers and now we're now we're going to go for the legal guys too and you know th there's th there's a lot of documentation and I've said this to Bobby Kennedy this is just like the Catholic Church everybody's going to have documentation everybody's going to have legal documents they're going to have opinions they're going to have letters they're going to have emails. It's just a matter of time before this story is really told by their own documents, which will impeach them, just like we, we in the Catholic Church when we did the uh, Catholic investigation. It was a historical secret archive that impeached the hierarchy of the Catholic Church because they knew for a long time. That's how I'm that's how I'm going at this entire investigation. But go on and tell us what happened to you, because it's an extraordinary story. It's injustice. It's unjustified. It, and it, it's um, it's wrong. It's just absolutely wrong because you were you were you were speaking out about ivermectin and administering that. Yes. So I was speaking, writing, uh, giving talks. I I spoken before legislators um, in several states about the treatment of uh, COVID with these drugs and other things. Mm -hmm. And um, so if practicing medicine 41 years, and I had had one complaint to the board in 41 years. Um, which turned out to be a spurious complaint and was dismissed. And the person who complained actually apologized. But so in 41 years, one complaint, suddenly in the fall of 2021, four complaints appear in a period of about three months. Uh, two people, strangers, uh, say, I saw a video of Dr. Ness and she was spreading misinformation. Mm -hmm. so those were two, the first two complaints. And then there was a complaint from a doctor who said, I saw, I had a patient came into the hospital with COVID and Dr. Ness had given her ivermectin and it's a horse paste. So I'm letting you know, you know, she should be prosecuted. And then a nurse midwife um, in my own town, it turned out, uh, reported me for having given a patient hydroxychloroquine, a pregnant woman. And so ivermectin is not approved in pregnancy, but hydroxychloroquine is. The, mid the midwife had no idea, no idea. She's like, Dr. Ness gave her hydroxychloroquine and it's dangerous. And I would have given her monoclonal antibodies, which are not approved for pregnancy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so those were the four complaints. And then I made a fifth complaint against myself. They said, I wrote to the board and said, look, you know, the, the pharmacies won't dispense these medications. And a pharmacist called me and asked me when I wrote a hydroxychloroquine prescription for a very high risk patient, what's it for? And I had to tell a white lie to the pharmacist in order to get him to dispense it. And so um, I, I said, you, you can't be putting people into that position. You can't be, this can't be good for patients or doctors. And you right. need you and the Board of Pharmacy need to change your policies. They had never written down that it was prohibited by, you know, in black and white, the drugs were fine to prescribe, but everybody knew, the doctors and the pharmacists, they could be investigated, as I've been, for um, dispensing it or prescribing it. So anyway, um, the board said, you have a hearing. They, they gave me a hearing date right around Christmas time, January 11th. Um, I got a lawyer and then the lawyer didn't like the case because it was very political and she quit the day before the hearing, but that was okay because she, I wasn't, you know, I didn't trust her anyway because she didn't seem to be on my side. Mm -hmm. And um, then they threw the book at me. I mean, there was not a single patient complaint. There was no complaint that anybody got harmed. 
Mm -hmm. And they did what what is extraordinary, which is to take my license, to suspend my license immediately as an imminent danger to the people of Maine, um, even though I had, nobody alleged I had injured anyone. And in order to do that, to justify doing that, they had to make some sort of allegation that I had either a psychiatric or a cognitive problem. And they, again, they didn't have any evidence for either. Nobody had complained of, of either of those. Um, so they just went to my website and started looking at the things I'd written. And I guess it seemed crazy to them, you know, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin actually work and the vaccines are dangerous. And so they chopped pieces off my website and used them, you know, as their allegation for me being mentally something. And, uh, and at the end of this um, first meeting, the first time the board members heard about me, at the end of their, you know, hour, hour and a half meeting, they all voted unanimously to suspend my license and to order a psych exam, which, by the way, the appointment had already been made. And the nine-page, um, you know, set of allegations against me for the immediate suspension had already been written. Prior to the, so, prior to your prior hearing. To the meeting. And it, there was no hearing. I wasn't allowed to say a word. It wasn't a hearing. It was just an initial you know, meeting, an initial discussion. And they threw the book at me, you know, show up at this shrink's office. We've picked him. Here's the appointment. And you bring him $2,100 when you get there. Um, let me let me ask you this, because I think that the, the public doesn't quite understand that when um, these medical boards and in, in some states, and I'm not familiar with how they're set up in Maine, so if you can tell us that, because in some states, I know the governor appoints people to the medical boards. It's sort of a political favor. Yes. Uh, some people don't even have to have a medical background. It's like a Correct. citizen commission. So you can stack it with your buddies if, you, if you're a politician taking money uh, from the pharmaceutical industry. And I know that in California, I've spoken to many doctors and it seems to be the medical boards in California are on fire to go after any doctor that challenges the CDC, Fauci's narrative about COVID, and even giving uh, writing medical exemptions for, for uh, patients. Absolutely. And, 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 and a lot of the public does not understand that, if, that they really have to stand up for good doctors like you and other good doctors, because if your license is taken away and you've given exemption, medical exemptions in the past, if the license is taken away, those medical exemptions can be canceled. Yes, so absolutely. Yes. On the public, and it's in the public's interest to understand. Tell us about the medical board in Maine. So the medical board is um, appointed by the governor, and mm -hmm. they work. What they do is just vote. You know, they hear things and vote, but. Who does all the work is a staff in Maine, about 10 people, three of whom have law degrees. Um, at least one has a medical degree. And um, they prepare all these cases, do the investigations, et cetera. And so they basically are, I think, behind the scenes making the decisions. And they, and as I said, they are state employees that also work at the, you know, uh, behest of the governor. Um, and is it in the is the medical board in the capital or is it in are they spread out across the the counties in Maine? Um, there's just one medical board in Maine, and so yes, the offices are in the in the capital. The as I say, the staff are state employees, mm -hmm. but now they do almost everything by Zoom. And um, so uh, you know, for, there are other doctors who have been um, investigated and had their licenses threatened simply for writing waivers for the vaccination, the COVID vaccines. Now that's this is a crazy, crazy thing because in Maine, the reason we lost our medical and philosophic exemptions three years ago was because the state um, em employees who were pushing for that promised that there would that doctors could write waivers broadly that there would be no limitations on on waivers because there there are no real standards for who is at high risk of uh, of, a, of a vaccine reaction or more likely somebody who's had vaccine number one and they don't want to take number two because they've had a bad reaction to number one 
and they may have become chronically ill, and then they're being asked to, to put themselves at jeopardy again. And so the role of the medical practitioner is, is to save them, is to make a, an informed decision about whether they deserve a waiver. And um, all the medical literature up until about the last three to five years was was very open about the fact that some people shouldn't be vaccinated. The, the, the vaccine information statements published by the CDC used to say some people should not be vaccinated. You know, these are the contraindications. You know, if you have this or that, stay away from this vaccine. CDC has removed those from their information statements. When did they remove them from, from the website? Um, during during so, COVID 2020, 2021? No, in the several years before. Okay. So they, so I have copies of, of some of them, like the polio information. You can, you know, you can go to archive.org and get the old version and then compare it to the new version. So CDC has been whittling away at the contraindications um, and uh, things that might be a concern regarding vaccinating yourself or your child. And just, it appears, like they have re, just like they have renamed the definition of vaccine. vaccine. Exactly. I yes. mean, I remember talking to somebody, not about this issue, but it was a concerned mother uh, in Connecticut about the exemptions when the vote was happening there in 2021 in the state house. And she was telling me that they actually changed the, the, the dictionary definition of vaccines to, because it's, you know, years ago, it used to be a live traditional vaccination that was part of the recipe. Now it's the gene therapy or whatever you call it. That's very, very different. Um, but I thought it was very, it thought it was very interesting because in most institutional corruption, they minimize with language. For instance, in the Catholic church, the Catholic church referred to the raping of a 45 year man, raping a seven year old boy as inappropriate touching when in mm -hmm. fact it was anal rape. And so that minimizes what's going on here. So that, so very early on when I found that they had changed the definition, I said, oh, that's one of the tools of the trade. Confuse people. Use the word vaccination when it's not really a vaccination. Change the definition of vaccination to include this quote unquote gene therapy. It's very interesting to me the intent with which this corruption has moved. Yes, uh, certainly there's a lot of intent and <clears throat> been changing for a number of years. Mm -hmm. So for most vaccines now, the CDC would have you believe that the only contraindication that exists is a prior anaphylactic reaction to the same shot. Right. So for most shots, CDC says you have to go for number one, no matter what's wrong with you. And mm -hmm. only if you have a life-threatening reaction will we let you uh, and so you might have had a, not a life-threatening reaction. You could have had Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a, you know, uh, a palsy. Uh, it, it can be like a stroke, uh, you know, it's a, a, in, 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 disorder. And that's not bad enough to stop you from getting another dose after you've gotten over your Guillain-Barre. Um, not everybody gets over it. Some people die from it. Um, so that was, and CDC did not cite any medical literature to justify these changes. I mean, they did, they cited a paper, but it didn't provide them any backing. And I've noticed CDC do, does that sometimes. They will cite a paper as if there's a reference that supports them. When you read the reference, it does no such thing, but um, they make or, it up. Or it's a, it's a, it's a planted, a planted paper, like when the Lancet February 2020 article came out so early it caught my attention this may 22nd when, yes when they, were, when they were saying that uh there's no lab leak and i thought well that doesn't make oh, any sense to sorry. me sorry but that but that was yeah. the early one that, caught that was my earlier i thought i thought you were referring to another lancet paper may 22nd of 2020 that said uh chloroquine drugs kill you Right. And that was that was that was, that was another one that caught yeah. my attention because I thought, no, that's not true. I mean, I've been going to Africa for years and I've taken hydroxychloroquine, you know, to to avoid malaria. So I mean, it was it was just things were being, but they bank on people being ignorant. Right. Exactly. They bank on people thinking that because this is a medical journal, 
that it must be the truth when they don't realize that that medical journals and for decades since World War II have been used uh, to basically push medicine and the safety of medicine on the market. But these people are all paid. I mean, it's like an ATM machine for these people, whether it's the journals and they corrupt that. I mean, this this has really come down to, I mean, the, the upside of everything that's happened in the last two years, it's pulled the lid off, although people don't fully understand it across the board. It has pulled the lid off of the corruption, of pharma corruption worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. And medicine and science. Yeah, one of the journal editors admitted that we are information laundering machines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So do, is there any appeal for you with, with, with the so, board? Yes. Um, so my attorneys have uh, filed a lawsuit against the board, you know, which um, challenging them regarding the neuropsych exam and challenging them regarding some of the other things they've done. And, um, you know, we're just uh, proceeding apace, you know, waiting for hearings and such. How are you coping with it? I mean, what was what was your reaction when it was in motion in that day that you sat in the room with these people and you realized everything was pre-prepared and you were prejudged? Yeah. So, you know, I when I walked in at the beginning of the meeting, I had no idea. I, I thought I would get a fair hearing. I thought these, you know, 40 years in medicine and I was under the impression the boards did good things, you know, protected the public from, uh, you know, bad doctors, impaired doctors, mostly alcoholics and drug addicts. Um, mm -hmm. That had been my impression. And when I um, experienced, you know, this sort of witch hunt um, where they weren't, they really weren't concerned about evidence. They were, it was all innuendo and this is what her website says and she's just attention seeking and blah, blah. They didn't, like one of the doctors, the doctors who presented my case says, has she ever even published a paper? And I thought, you know, my CV is on my website. I've published mm -hmm. over 30 papers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and she has she ever published anything about a vaccine? Well, yes, I actually published the first review article on anthrax vaccine. You know, I've given six testimonies to Congress. You know, I've testified before at least half a dozen different state legislatures. Um, so they didn't know any of this about me. They knew nothing about me. Um, but how many, how many people were the decision makers on that board? First of all, how there, many on the board? I think there there were probably about nine, uh, something like that. And they voted. They all they voted unanimously on every question. Not only me. There were six or eight other doctor issues that they were, you know, dealing with that day, and they voted unanimously on every one that I saw. So I could see that's what the board does. They're just rubber stampers. <laughs> so it was it was yeah. the staffers probably behind the scenes. Yeah. It was how the many doctors? How many doctors that were on the board? I there were probably five, five or six, two mm -hmm. physician assistants and three, um, two or three lay people. Now, one person who was on the board and voted against me, um, when she found out what actually was going on, she just quit the board. She just left immediately. What do you mean she left? She left. She resigned. She, left. she just no. It took her took her some time, but once she you know was on the outside and learned what the case was really. See, there was a lot of publicity, so once she understood what she had voted for, she just resigned from the board. She apologized to you. No. No, I heard this from a friend of hers. What's What's the background? That she was unhappy about it. Uh, that's all I know. Did she think it was unethical? Uh, that, I believe so. But she hasn't gone public, but she did resign. No. Yes. <clears throat> That's how scary it's gotten in the States. But the thing is, it doesn't, it's not really good that she resigned. I mean, she had, she cared about the issue. She should have stayed and argued with the rest of the board members. Mm -hmm. You see, but, you know, our society now encourages everybody to become a yes man. You know, the, the penalties are grave if you disagree with the crowd. Well, the fear fear is a, is, a, is a factor for people. I think people, you know, the fact that the Biden administration now has, has appointed the, this 33-year-old woman yes! who's wet behind the ears, has no worldly experience, 
to be in the position of being the dis, you know, the disinformation board. I'd love for her to come after me. Okay. Because I, I, I think this is, I, I think this is the sickest thing I've ever, I mean, I never thought that I would see this in America. I know. You know and, and I'm just, just in the last two years as a journalist, I'm just beginning to understand the power of medical boards to go after doctors who disagree with somebody who is as corrupt as Anthony Fauci. And it is extraordinary to me that with everything that is known now, that that people sit on the bench because people need to know if they sit on the bench, they're next. They will figure out a way to come after everybody. This, this, this type of tactics is exactly like what went on in the 1930s. Yes, exactly. You know, the uh, the reason they went after me was to terrorize everybody else. I mean, mm -hmm. they don't care about me, but mm -hmm. they thought they assumed, you know, I'm old. It costs a lot of money to fight them. I'm just going to give up my license. That's what everybody else does. Mm -hmm. If they go after you and you're old, you just give them your license and say goodbye because you don't have hundreds of thousands of, you're never going to make that money back mm -hmm. in your to spend hundreds of thousands, you know, fighting in court and maybe losing because it may be political. Mm -hmm. so, but what patients are losing is the ability to choose. I mean, the reason right. they had to go after me was so that patients would not have doctors who could give them these drugs, who could warn them about what is known about the vaccines um, and uh, who might give them waivers because the board went after several other doctors in Maine for writing waivers for the vaccines. So they want, so the day after I had this hearing, there wasn't even a hearing, it's just meeting. I was in the national news. I was on the Associated Press wire. You know, they wanted every doctor in America to see what happened to Meryl. If it could happen to Meryl Nass, it could happen to you. So shut your mouth. Mm -hmm. And, um, Sure enough, it's, you know, it's almost impossible now for a patient to get these drugs in my state. On the other hand, several of the attorney generals in um, Republican states have gone on the warpath uh, or the legislature and are voting to start controlling the boards, to stop the boards going after doctors, giving, you know, so the attorney generals are either issuing opinions, giving safe harbor to doctors to prescribe these medicines, um, or uh, going after the the man the vaccine mandates, you know, challenging the federal government on them. So uh, some of the state, you know, states are waking up and starting to take care of their populations. But we're in a very early stage. You know, we don't know where these cases will go. People don't realize that as medicine is going through these changes, there options in the future are being narrowed more and more. What the federal government has tried to do with COVID is to tell you there is one treatment. You you get nothing until you're hospitalized and then you get remdesivir. Or which, which has a very high potency organs. Um, or you could have gotten monoclonal antibodies, but usually you were getting them before after they were effective. They cost thousands of dollars. They have to be given IV. You know, who made, the, they're all under emergency use authorization. Was the plant ever inspected? You know, did do they meet any standard? No, emergency use authorization is simply requires that the likelihood of the drug being used is more benefit than risk. That's it, that is the standard. Um, and sometimes FDA may establish a standard and tell the manufacturers, We, for instance, with the vaccines, uh, FDA told the manufacturers to, to issue an emergency use authorization. We want the vaccine to be at least 50% effective um, with a confidence interval um, no lower than 30. That meant that there's a, there could be no more than a 5% chance that it's only 30% effective. Right. It's, I mean, when, if people understood the weeds of this and the numbers and the meaning of the, the, the changing of definitions, the changing of standards, you know, they, I, I, I don't know whether it's that people don't care or they don't, they, they're just, they don't want to under, they just want to get through this, but they're not understanding that. Well, you, have, you have to, you know, look, you have to spend all your time reading to find out what's going on. So Peter Marks, who is now the head of vaccines at the FDA, 
Very Thank dangerous Congress. man. Very Thank dangerous Congress man. On Friday, that they're not, that for the child, the early childhood vaccine, for the six months to through up till five years old COVID vaccines, they are not going to require this 50%, 30% standard. They'll take, he didn't say what they'd take, they'll probably take anything. Whatever the manufacturer offers, which usually turns out to be untrue, in the, you know, when the vaccine goes to the real world, like right, how long has the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine been 95% effective? You know, not since, uh, not since they started they, they got the EUAs. Mm -hmm. And um, so they're going to try and, you know, usher in vaccines with no standards. And um, of course, but who reads these, you know, documents and who, who reads the fine, who knows where to find them? That's part of the problem too. They don't. They don't know that they are entitled to the, um, ask for the insert in the box where the vials are if they walk into a pharmacy to get a shot. But there was a woman who did that. At, somebody sent me something today. EUAs don't even have a package insert. They EUAs. They have a fact sheet, and you're supposed to read it, and you're supposed to give informed consent before you get it. But you're often not even handed it until afterwards, or never. That's right. So all the all the standards, all the safeties. I mean, out the practices out the window. So so tell you you also did a deep dive on the ivermectin testing that was done to discredit the use of ivermectin and the um, hydroxychloroquine. Did that shock you when you realized that they had they had administered uh, higher in, uh, an increase that would have caused damage intentionally? Yeah. So let me um, just clear that up. So ivermectin was not overdose, but hydroxychloroquine dose was given at too high a dose in three large clinical trials, one to over one to about sixteen hundred patients with COVID in the hospital and one in the UK, and one to about a thousand patients in the hospital in many countries under the auspices of the WHO. Um, Which I, is important because of where we are in the calendar with the absolutely. WHO now wanting to take over the health sovereignty of every country in the world. So, um, I, you know, I'm familiar with hydroxychloroquine. I took it myself as a malaria preventive in Africa. I took it for treatment of malaria. I've given it to, I think, about 200 patients. Um, and so I saw that uh, these trials were using high doses, but that the justification was that COVID is a life-threatening illness, and we they thought they needed a higher blood level and uh, in order to kill the virus, so they decided to do this. And I took that at face value initially, um, but uh, someone on, on Twitter started saying that in the UK trial, people were getting too much. And I thought, huh. So then mm -hmm. I did a deep dive and I started reading the textbooks, the publications on the chloroquine drugs, uh, the pharmacology books, you know, every, everything I could get my hands on right. about dosing and where, how the drug is excreted, you know, how it's stored in the body, where it turned out that the blood level is, is not important for therapy because the drug um, goes to the tissues, particularly the lungs, and stays there at concentrations that could be 700 times higher than in the blood. So to talk about the blood level, when you're talking about trying to treat a disease in the lungs and, and in the respiratory tract is stupid. Now, were they stupid? Were they mistaken or was it deliberate? So it seemed like they were stupid. Okay, but the, the chloroquine is a drug that's been around for over 65 years and hydroxychloroquine, you know, almost that long, maybe 50 years. So, it's not like, you know, they're just invented and people don't know anything. There's, these, these drugs have been used billions of times and there's a lot of literature. And in fact, it turned out in the 1970s, a book was written in France about how to commit suicide. And it suggested using chloroquine oh, wow. as a suicide drug. And as a result, there were hundreds of suicide attempts with chloroquine in France. And I discovered in the middle of my deep dive that the WHO in the late 1970s 
had hired a consultant whose last name was Weniger, W-E-N-I-G-E-R, to investigate what the fatal dose was of chloroquine. And this person had looked at the records of these hundreds of overdose cases in France and had come up with a, a possible LD50. You know, what, what is a potentially lethal dose of chloroquine? Well, it turned out that it, it can have certain effects on electrolytes in the heart and that can cause a fatal arrhythmia. So although most drugs have a wide therapeutic to toxic uh, window, so in other words, for most drugs, you can go to 10 times the normal dose and it still isn't gonna kill you. But that's not true of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. You can go to three or four times the normal dose. And while it's in your bloodstream, if you get this high peak briefly in your heart, it can cause a fatal arrhythmia, especially if you're on other drugs that do the same thing. And there's a lot of other drugs that can do that. So my question is for when they were administering these in the clinical tests, did they go to that level? level? Yes, they did. They just went to right <clears throat> close to that lethal dose. And now, was that, who, gave them, who, who gave them the directions to go to that level in the hospital? Was that somebody who was in the know from WHO or CDC? So there were three different clinical trials that had similar protocols, same for high dose, for high dose. dose. Now it wasn't all at once. So the best way to suicide is to take it all at once, but they divided it up. So you were taking high doses throughout the first 24 hours. And then after that, you were taking double the normal dose, but you're taking about quadruple the normal dose the first 24 hours. Were the patients informed? I do not believe the patients were informed, although I have not found an informed consent. And the WHO is very sensitive about this because they, in their published paper, they wrote that um, some of the, I think it was the published paper, uh, I, it'll, I've linked it in my blog, that uh, patients were handed the informed consent, patients signed an informed consent, it was handed back to the patient. Now, they were, those informed consents were supposed to be scanned and sent to the WHO before the WHO um, assigned them a, a treatment, right? There was some randomized process that the WHO was undertaking. So um, they had to, they must be lying. You know, you don't hand a patient their own informed consent. You have to have a copy in a clinical trial. What that means is WHO does not have copies of the informed consents for all the patients. And probably, because it was conducted in many countries, um, probably. Well, let, let, me, let, me, let me see if I understand this correctly. So this would, would have been done in 2021 or 2020? 2020. 2020, from, early from March on, to June. from March to June. Are you, do I have this right, that the WHO administered clinical trials for hydroxychloroquine? And other drugs. And, and other overdose. drugs for early treatments in, yes. in 20 plus countries. Yes. And the WHO was informed in the 1970s that there was a lethal dosage of hydroxychloroquine and that within the confines and the standards of these tests in 2020, they upped the to the lethal dose? Yes. As I said, the lethal dose- Why isn't the dose in the Weniger study, you take all at once, but WHO gave the lethal dose broken up over 24 hours. Why isn't a prosecutor taking a look at that? Well, they need a plaintiff. So you would need to identify a family whose, whose family member died um, and who didn't sign an informed consent. Or because if they, they signed it, and the, no, but it's not they just- They weren't informed consent. that they were being given a potentially lethal dose. Well, yes. I mean, if, if if they may not have even asked. I mean, if you if you if you don't have somebody in the hospital, and at and that point in time you couldn't get into the hospital, they right. were just administering whatever the hell they wanted to do in the hospital. But if it's a WHO assigned clinical trial, the W who oversaw this at the WHO? Um, a lot of people. So Anna Maria Restrepo, 
who is one of the top people. Um, uh, Sumya uh, Suminathan, who is uh, the the head science officer. She's a chief. She's a chief scientist for the WHO. Yes, and um, she's also the person who has publicly stated that they don't have enough information to even know whether you should have four doses of a vaccine, and that they think that it is okay now to mix you know, the, the, the mRNA with the non-mRNA right. vaccinations if you have to have four. I mean, if this isn't a medical experiment gone to hell, I don't know what is. I'll tell you something else about that. Um, in the, I think it was a Scandinavian study, if you got, if one of your doses was the Moderna dose and the others were not, you had a much higher rate of myocarditis that's really odd. I've never seen anything like it before. So if you were getting Pfizer before, which is what they had in Scandinavia early, they had the Pfizer first, mm -hmm. and then later they had Moderna. So people tended to get Pfizer and then Moderna after the first two. Those were the highest by far rates of myocarditis in both men and women in different age groups. Really, really bizarre. How does how do you feel as a doctor who has been practicing and administering to patients for 40, 40, is it 41 years? Yes. To see this this level of corruption and lack of ethics. How do you feel about your industry? <laughs> it, it, you know, it's it's terribly disconcerting. It's it's all in a way, it's almost a relief to not be doing it anymore because I don't want to be part of this dreadful, uh, you know, black hole that, that the, you know, medicine has fallen into. It is, um, uh, it's unbelievable. You know, I, I can't, I still can't quite understand that. How could this be happening? You know, we, I mean, I saw patient rights being whittled away over those four decades. You know, in the four, 40 years ago, if we said this, this is a patient care issue, you know, we need this expensive drug or we need to do something out of the ordinary because a patient needs it. That was all we had to say. And the patient got it, you know, and now that's the last and insurance thing paid for. Yeah, well, or somebody or the hospital ate it. Somebody, you know, that was not the doctor's concern was who got paid, you know, mm -hmm. our salary or whatever. We got our our money, and but right. we—I mean, we weren't counting our money. Um, in those days, hospitals were mostly run by doctors, and you know that. Anyway, they were most hospitals were nonprofits, but now it's very common for hospital presidents. They're usually not doctors, and they off they can earn millions of dollars. The president of uh, New York Presbyterian was getting $6 million a year. Um, so it's it's a different ball game. If you're making $6 million a year, you have gotta get it, gotta generate a lot of money to pay those salaries. And there's probably several vice presidents who are making 2 million, you know? I mean, these, these are big numbers. And um, you've also got these very expensive drugs. What happened, I think, the, with COVID is the, hospitals and the medical medical system was basically going broke because patients were frightened to go there. I was frightened to go get a lab test. You know, I had a doctor order a test and I didn't want to go to the into the hospital lab and get the blood drawn. So everyone else was like that. People would not go to the hospital unless they had some terrible, you know, terribly awful thing happening to them. Hospitals were running out of money and now all of a sudden, so they're all worried about having to close and the government offers them these fantastic boons to, to test everybody for COVID, to diagnose people with COVID, to put them on ventilators, and to give them remdesivir and, and get COVID on get COVID on the certificates for the tier right. one hospitals. So there were all there were different um, ways you could up the amount of money it, reimbursement you were getting from the federal government through Medicare, and as a result. Um, the hospital shifted to totally focusing on getting those benefits, extra benefits, which could double or triple or quadruple what you would normally get from that hospitalization. And 
somehow, you know, things get enforced in a, in a hospital. It's, it's difficult to say exactly how, but doctors have meetings. They're told, okay, the hospital's in dire straits, but you know, or if you order these, we'll do the best. And then, then we won't have to let you go. Right. We'll be able to keep you hired. And, um, people go along. I mean, it's, it's been, I remember when Medicare wouldn't, you know, pay for a woman to stay overnight in the hospital with a mastectomy, doctors would do a drive-by mastectomy. When Medicare wouldn't pay for pap smears, you know, doctors stopped doing pap smears. It's, it's the way of uh, the system. And so hospitals and doctors were trained. You, fo you follow the money trail. That is what you're expected to do. You know, if, you're, if you don't comply, you'll be out. We don't need you. I wish you the best. What is the status of, of your uh, of your case right now? It's on appeal. You're suing. I mean, it's not. So, well, I, I don't. I guess we don't. Yeah, so I haven't so been. You're, actually, you're suing them. I ha Yes, I'm suing them. I haven't been found guilty of anything. I haven't had a board hearing. The official, mm -hmm. you know thing that you do with the board when they officially take away your license. I'm just under suspension now, pending a hearing. And I've sued the board. And so that is also pending. And we'll we'll see where this goes. I hope you subpoena the woman who stepped down from the medical board. I bet I bet she's a wealth of information and in the entire staff who prejudged you before you had a hearing. That would be nice. I, I think so. I think if you put people under oath that they might buckle. That's what we found when we investigated the Catholic Church. It took an awful lot of pressure, but there were very very many people that were in the know that mm -hmm. were and they knew. And then then the way that we got them was in fact that um, they were a lot of pressure was brought to bear on people, but that's when they told the truth. Dr. Nass, thank you again. Please come back anytime. We're going to follow your story. And I'm sorry you went through this because I've heard nothing but good things about you. Thank you very much, Christine.